No, I can't hear you. I, I don't, don't I don't don't call me names. Is is the button is the light on the side of your headphones supposed to be red or green or blue? It's red. Which usually means off. But I mean I'm no headphone guy. I don't know, I can't read your lips when you're just mumbling. Although I don't know that I want to read them. Could be. It says connecting. Hey, you just lit up. Yeah? Can you hear yeah. me? Yeah, yeah. See? <laughs> I'm a genius. I'm a genius with the mind of a champion. Congratulations. You figured out how to hook up your wireless Bluetooth headset to your computer. So it's <laughs> I don't know if that qualifies you as a genius. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel like other people have managed to do this before. Um, don't, uh, I don't feel like you're breaking new ground, but uh, that's all right. I mean, I will give you this. My mom. Yes. Couldn't do that, so you can. Oh, okay. Good. Good. good better good. than my mom. Completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my God. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Mm-hmm. Like I said, <clears throat> this is a this is a little bit more of an maybe I, I think maybe a little ambitious. So we'll see what happens. Okay. A slightly more ambitious. It might be a little intellectually, a uh, bit more intellectually. Uh, chat not challenging. Just it's a different kind of topic. So, uh, sure, so I sure. do, I do. You know, feel free to uh, to stop me and ask questions, but don't you dare disagree with me. What uh, is this? <laughs> what is the general? What is the general uh, plot here? What do we? What do uh, we well, I'm going to. Uh, we're going to get into it pretty quickly. So I, okay, I mean, okay. or at least I'm going to give you the 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 theoretical kind of framework that we're working under pretty quickly. So, uh, with that in mind. Hello and welcome, Unbalanced listeners. This is Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. I'm Brian, a history nerd and erstwhile scholar. In each Unbalanced episode, I read a fascinating and usually little-known story from history to my friend, a decorated veteran of the culture wars, a man so dedicated to the cause, he bought 10 gas stoves just to own the libs. He denounced Denounced the woke Pink Floyd or denounced woke Pink Floyd for putting a rainbow on their 50th anniversary Dark Side of the Moon re-release and is currently mad that Xbox now has a lower energy setting. It's Mike. Mike. <laughs> how's it that going, buddy? A, that was awesome. And you nailed it. That was everything I've been doing over the last couple of weeks. So uh, it's good, man. It's good. Everything's going great. Everything's going great. And uh you know, I'm just cooking on all on all burners right now. What sure. do you want to? It's uh, <laughs> it's it's good. Yeah, all the all the gas burners. I got a, I got a slight headache. I'm a little lightheaded. I'm sure it's fine. Um, <laughs> don't light don't light your cigarette right now, okay? I have yeah. I have to say the Xbox thing has thrown me a little bit. Um, the uh, I didn't know that about the Xbox. Yeah, it's brand new. Uh, I saw uh, I saw your boy Ted Cruz tweeting about it that uh, now they're coming for your Xbox. Um, First it was your gas stove, and then it was I don't know something else that's made up, and then and now it's your Xbox. Xbox basically just like 
they just uh, announced that they have this long-term plan to be uh, carbon neutral by 2040 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And as part of that plan, uh, when I say Xbox, I mean Microsoft. As part of that plan, um, they've created a new setting that you can choose to use on your Xbox. You can also choose not to use it, but mm-hmm. it's a, a, a lower energy setting that um, it, they, they have been really upfront. They're like, well, it will slow your boot up times very slightly. Um, but it it uh, uses less power, and so you know that's the whole thing. It it'll use less power, and um, it I think instead of going to uh, instead of going into like sleep mode, I guess it goes into whatever the next level down is, so that it so oh. that it. Well, no, no, no. There's like a sleep mode, and then there's like a hibernate. So I think it I think instead of sleep mode, it goes into like hibernate, which is uh-huh. uh, uh, you know a lower power setting. Sleep mode when you wake it up from sleep mode, it immediately boots up hibernate takes a minute to, to get run it back up and run it so whatever uh there that's like a thing that they've put in just saying like okay this is here's a thing that everybody can do if they if they want to uh nobody's being like forced against their will to do this but uh but everybody's all at it i'll i don't know ted cruz and then some other weird like right-wing weirdos are are trying to turn it into some sort of cultural war issue because like i, I don't know because what else do they have uh, anyway, mm. it's it's throwing me a little bit. It's it's just beyond weird, but that's okay. Like, I mean, whatever, I, I honestly d- didn't hear about it until you brought it up. I don't mm. know why anyone would give a shit about that. Uh, because they take a lot of money from uh, oil and gas, and <laughs> I guess they're they're concerned about anything that reduces uh, energy usage. So, uh, but you know, that's not. They're not going to say that. They're going to say it's freedom. Mm. But of course, you have the freedom. You can choose not to do the thing. So whatever yeah, man I, it's just weirdo weirdo stuff as i've said to you many 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 times because there are no material like no there are no politics to improve the material lives of people anymore like that ship has sailed like that is our political system is so completely captured by corporate interests that like they there is no more mass politics it's over and so they don't have anything left except for culture war stuff so that's that's like the best they can do is like Hey, we're not going to make your life better, but we can give you, we can like direct you towards people to be mad at. And, um, you know, Hey, look at her. She has blue hair. I'll bet she voted for Hillary Clinton. Let's, let's make that an issue. Um, you, you know I mean? It's, it's like just this sort of shallow, whatever. I mean, whatever it's, it's, you, you know, in, in the absence of any actual real politics, what else do you have? It's like, well, yep. let's, let's see if we, <laughs> let's, let's see if we can keep zapping some electricity into this dead horse and get it running a, just a few more feet, you know, um, kick it down the road before the whole thing crumbles. Um, let's see what happens. Anyway, yeah, I find that to be I find that to be absolutely silly. We have not even gotten to sunshine yet, Mike. For God's sakes, we gotta <laughs> we gotta move on. So, back to the topic, uh, or back to the intro to the intro. Intro uh, so to today, the intro. Intro to the intro. So today, tonight. We are going to dig into a topic that is near and dear to your heart. Oh, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to talk about some uh, Western capitalist themes, and we're going to dig into some uh, what I think is some pretty heady stuff. Um, and so, like I said, I said before, I really want you to chime in and stop me so we can sort of tackle any challenging ideas or themes along the way. Okay? Yeah. So now, uh, dear listeners. Please don't run screaming into the hills uh, just yet. It will not be boring or too academic, or at least I hope it won't. Um, we're going to be framing our story around the American South, mostly the antebellum South, 
mainly we're going to focus on the time from 1830 to like 1860. Um, but most importantly, I hope that uh, most importantly, what I hope is that much of what we discuss here uh, will resonate with you, Mike, and with you, our unbalanced listeners with our present historical moment. Like, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is stuff that um, feels familiar to some of the, the same, the discussions that we're having in our, our present moment. So um, there's an expression among historians that goes, history doesn't really repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think this episode reflects that. But before we get started, okay. Mike, Mike, yes. Mike, Mike, yes. Mike, yes. Mike yes. Yep. What's, your sun- what's your sunshine this week, buddy? Oh, my sunshine for the week. That's a good one. That's a good one. Hmm. My sunshine for the week. Well, I have potentially found a new home, which would be, which is exciting. That is exciting. Um, in the process of moving. Okay. Um, I have also found potentially some new clients on the horizon. So that's exciting as well. Um, I'm so far so good, healthy this year. And uh, so, yeah, no complaints. Um, the sun is shining in my world. How about yourself? Well, mine's a little silly and I don't care. Uh, I found these, uh, I got these, this is, this is really silly because I don't want to sound like a Disney adult, but it just happens to be the case that, uh, yeah, I knew, I knew many of them. My, my wife got me these, uh, these sweatpants for Christmas and, uh, and they're, uh, I don't know. They're Disney. They're like Disney. I don't know, whatever. They're like a retro Disney sweatpants. And, uh, I know this is dumb, but my God, they're, they're just like, the they're, the most, they're just the most comfortable sweatpants I've owned. Oh. And um, where um, Disney has these two little stores down in Orlando where they sell stuff on clearance. And because of uh, having a seven-year-old and having a five-year-old niece and, uh, you know, and a one-and-a-half-year-old nephew and all that stuff, I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I do like to stop in there periodically because they, uh, you know, for everybody. And, oh, yeah. uh, but while I was there, I never really, you know, I'm not, I don't usually get anything for myself or even really look much for myself, but like, so these sweatpants, I was like, Ooh, I kind of like those. I like the way they feel. And Carla got them for me for Christmas. So anyway, nice. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I know it's dumb, but I, I can't, I don't, uh, I really don't buy, uh, things like, like loungy clothes for myself. I, yep. I have a, a pair of Raven sweatpants that I've been wearing for like a decade now that, uh, have, have, <laughs> have so many like just baked in, you know, probably like, like little butter, <laughs> like butter and oil spots from cooking at them. And, uh, and they're, they're really faded purple and all that. And they're, they're great, but like, <clears throat> you know, they could be, uh, they could be upgraded. And, uh, anyway, I, um, I was pretty excited cause I, I threw away, I was like the two pairs of two pairs of sweatpants. I only, I, I like to keep a, a rotation of three. Uh, pairs I do of too. I actually, I had, yeah, you're right. I have three. Three. That's all. That's what I want. And so I, I had gotten rid of some, so I was down to two anyway. So I'm just excited that I uh, have replaced my second pair and uh, they turned out to be a real, real good pick because if they hadn't been, I would still probably wear them for the next like seven years before I replaced them. So I'm glad that I, they're, they're awesome. <laughs> so I, love it. I, I, I know it's a, it's a dumb sunshine. Uh, I've got some other stuff going on, but I don't want to, I don't want to jinx anything. So I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. So. Good, um, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So, so I'm going to stick with that until uh, until the next episode. Okay, okay. So with that out of the way, uh, today, uh, you you got to stop walking around. You're making me nervous. Why? You're pacing around, pacing this around how, like you're like you're in a boiler keep, room. 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you to try it. Waiting for you to try and uh, sell me uh, a plot of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, anyway, I stay, uh, I stay active, I stay up, I stay refreshed like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, walk yeah. Around, well, I shoot a rack. It's very, it's very distracting. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, so today, Mike, what we're going to talk about are competing visions of independence. Okay. Competing visions of independence. Right. Because independence doesn't really mean anything. It means lots of different things to lots of different people. And the, the, in, uh, sure. in short, you know, our, our whole, the, the entire history of, of uh, the United States, but, but a lot of countries or places or people can be sort of described as uh, battles over different visions of independence. And yep. so we're going to look at the ways that, Labor is organized and managed. And most important, we're going to talk about time. Oof, the most valuable commodity on the face of the planet. Love it. Let's do it, baby. Well, then right you are. My alley. This is what I talk to my clients about. Time. How, how do we give you back your time? You're going to love this because that's uh, everything we're talking about today is how that idea seeped into uh, our country. And now it's all about automation, baby. Yeah, that's the so, ultimate time saver, and it's yeah. going to be the ultimate economy cruncher. Yeah, it's going to destroy the economy. Um, it's going right. to destroy people, is what it's going to do. Anyway, it's going to destroy a lot of things. Yeah. Now listen, <clears throat> I want okay. you to keep this. This is a keep this idea in your mind. Um, okay. This uh, recently deceased historian uh, Michelle Sobel, how <sighs> she argued, "quote A culture's sense of time." is key to its nature and yes, because Correct. there are different, different visions of time that people yes. hold. Um, I was you're looking at a bunch of different, different groups, of people with the way they view different kinds of time. Um, there's an East African uh, saying that um, time slows down for everyone, even time, which I kind of like, uh, or in Trinidad where they say it's always Trinidad time uh, or rather any time is Trinidad time. And, um, Again, different, just a different idea. Like we're, you know, um, about mm -hmm. time. There, there are some yes, groups yes, of people, yes. for example, uh, some groups that don't have a single word for time, whereas time is a noun in Eng in English. There are other people who have like different words to describe different types of time and and whatnot. So this is what we're going to kind of think about: is how culture sense of time is key to that culture's nature, and whether or not that's true or not, I'm not sure. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it, but like that, I like that idea, and we're gonna hold on to that for this whole episode, and we're gonna try and get a sense uh, of the nature of the antebellum and uh, New South by trying to understand the competing senses of time there. And and how the that's those senses of time change over time, and by extension, maybe we can understand a little something about our own nature today. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. I'm here. Can't you not hear me? <laughs> no, I couldn't hear you. I heard you. Can you not hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Okay, are you there? Yeah, you hear okay. me now? I hear you uh, now. What's wrong with this thing? You in the bathroom? Yeah. Oh, I've got full bars too. Okay, good. Yeah, maybe it was just giving me a courtesy silence because you're in the bathroom. No. Oh. Okay. All right. Let's do some history. Sociologists, historians, and just humanity scholars in general refer to the 300-year period. Huh? Are you breaking up already? Killing me, Smalls. It's a very professional podcast we've got going here. 
very professional. It's like a finely tuned machine, like a tightly wound clock, maybe. All right. Are you there? I don't know what's no, going on there. with my connection here. It was going really in and out, but I have full bars here. Hmm. Interesting. Bad, bad in the bathroom. My office. I can't go to my office. I think it's just uh, sparing me the bathroom. All right. Uh huh. All right. So, sociologists, historians, and uh, humanity scholars in general refer to the 300 year period from 1650 to 1950, uh, give or take, as the period of modernity, as, you know, as in like the modern era. And so, I mean, again, I just want to point that out because we use the word modern all the time to talk about stuff today, but I want to use it in a very specific kind of uh, a specific way. Right. So we today live in a, in a postmodern world, according Correct. to, you know, uh, most scholars. And, um, but briefly, moder- modernity is defined as a kind of period. Again, it's one of those things where it's like, well, how do you know if a country is modern? Well, I don't know. Um, there are a number of different things that we can point to and say, well, these seem to be the, the, these seem to be the characteristics of a modern country or a country that is becoming modern or whatever. And so some percentage of those things, you know, or some variation of those things is how we identify a place as modern. The industrial so, briefly, revolution. Um, yeah, but not necessarily. There are ways to, to be modern without industrialization. So, uh, and we're going to talk about that a bit today with, because we're looking at the South. So modernity is defined as a period that has, um, is characterized, is characterized by nation state building, uh, urbanization, capitalism, uh, industrialization, right? To some degree, uh, and a belief in progress through science. Um, that, you know, this idea that science is going to sort of solve our, our problems, which, you know, we still sort of have some of that. Uh, generally speaking, this era ends kind of in the aftermath of World War II because World War II leads to a collapse in the belief that humanity is somehow progressing as a species, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, the whole idea that like generation after generation after generation was improving on the, the one before, uh, kind of falls apart with like, uh, you know, dropping, uh, dropping the atomic bombs and like the instant vaporization of, you know, like 60,000 people in one go, people are like, huh, mm-hmm. this doesn't seem like we're improving as a, as a species. Right. So right. postmodernism. Uh, so yeah, right. World war two really makes people sort of question everything. World war one did too, but it, it becomes much more uh, um, prevalent after world war two. So uh, postmodernism is sort of defined by globalism, uh, consumerism, uh, kind of cultural diversity and what's called hyper reality. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> where, you know, the, the, the mass media, the, the, um, you know, social media, things like that are, are, are able to present things to us, uh, images, media images and whatnot that are, uh, you know, literally realistic, you know, hyper real, you know, not just real, not realistic, like a seventies TV show was because people then thought what they were watching was very realistic. <laughs> it looks like, you know, you can identify, okay, you know, can mo- I- again, movies do the same thing. Yes. Yes. Anyway, okay. So, um, but also there's uh, postmodernism is sort of defined by a kind of skepticism about uh, inherited institutions and knowledge, especially science, politics, and and even as we've seen in the last few years, uh, there are even debates about what is mm-hmm. true. You know, there are literally skepticism about truth or, or whether truth Correct. even exists. So, some people argue that social media and mobile communication has sent us into a kind of post postmodernism, but obviously that's a discussion for people better trained than us. Um, there's like an argument that social media uh, and particularly, you know, sort of the, the 
accessibility of, of uh, instantaneous communication at all times has sent us into, a, you know, something that even goes to a new, uh, a new sort of epoch of human existence. Yes. Um, anyway, but we'll, but anyway, that's a, another thing. Anyway, it's important to remember that these terms are kind of attempting to describe processes. That is contested shifts that occur in human societies that uh, appear clearer to us from our vantage point here in the future. Um, but that, of course, leads to the false kind of sense that these things were inevitable. And it also tends to lead us to not necessarily um, pay attention to the processes at the moment. Like we don't we're not able to see the changes that are occurring at our at our present moment. Somebody in the future will look back and be like, oh, it was so obvious what was happening over these 20 years or 50 years or whatever. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. OK, so um, as a as with all of uh, what I would call the the detritus of history is the mm-hmm. the flotsam and jetsam of history. We can learn much from examining the the contested terrain itself instead of just like how it concluded. Right. Like if we actually look at the the way these these things sort of were battled over um, mm-hmm. changes were battled over. As we're going to look at capitalist formation, I think it's useful to think about something Karl Marx observed on this topic. Marx mm-hmm. emphasized the revolutionary nature of capitalism. It, uh, according to him, you know, it annihilated the old social organizations and ushered in, quote, the uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, end quote. Or mm-hmm. what today Silicon Valley bros kind of celebrate as disruptive technologies, right? right? Um, so, you know, that's that was Karl Marx's take. Um, primarily looking at capitalism as the replacement for feudalism, mm-hmm. that it, it annihilated all social relationships that had existed uh, in the way they existed. And and so a whole new infrastructure, uh, like a social capital, political capital, political economy, all of that stuff had to be rebuilt from uh, not really from the ground up exactly, but but kind of from the ground, ground up piecemeal in order to um, put things back together because the contradictions of the old system just became too bloated and desiccated and kind of fell apart and so everything had to be rebuilt new um it's part of why we have all those like crazy wars of religion uh in the in the sort of aftermath of feudalism's demise right um system can no longer hold itself together and so you just have all of the frustrations and everything else get vented out as you know like ah those papists they have to die and um then the the catholic church kind of figuring out ways to rewrite the bible to say well actually uh assassinating uh assassinating political leaders who have gone Protestant is, is, is totally fine in the Bible. Um, <laughs> the Bible, the Bible says totally that. Fine. And so we're just going to put a new, we're going to put another footnote down there to <laughs> like, it's, we can do that. <laughs> anyway, one of the uh, most disruptive and tyrannical, and that's important, tyrannical. It is a tyrant uh, technologies that emerged in the modern era. One that created a whole new language and completely reoriented and reordered society and it's one whose meaning kind of remains fraught and fought over in many cultures today. I am talking about the most obscure, most abstract of, of the intangibles of our human existence. And it's one we hardly ever think about, although you mm-hmm. obviously do. Mm-hmm. It's time. Right. I told you. It is completely intangible. Through the, through the hourglass. Um, Sand through the hourglass, my friend. It we, goes way too fast. We often hear... Uh, or even say time is money and it's fleeting that too. But this understanding, the association of intangible time, right? Something that doesn't exist that we sort of make up and imagine, right? We imagine we have to create the idea of time. 
Um, and it's the association of this intangible thing with the most tangible, the most objective quality that we have as people, money, right? So it is that is entirely an object, or at least it was. Uh, now it's hard to know exactly what it is. But up until now, money has always been, a, an I mean, literally objective. It's always been a physical thing that you could hold, that you can touch. It is completely objective. It is an object that you exchange for another object. It's an object that by itself serves no value whatsoever, only as a unit of exchange, right? Like, so it is a purely objective item. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm, this is where it's like a little, the philosophy is a little, you know, where it's like, but like you, if you wanted to build a house, you know, having a stack of hundred dollar bills does you no good. Only if you can hand them to somebody else for, for lumber, for stone, for, concrete services whatever services too yeah right so it is by its so it is it is kind of unique in that way we don't really have anything else that I, that exists in our experience that is kind of that same thing something that is completely worthless by itself but is given that we imbue with value and meaning because collectively it's, because it's backed up by the credit of the united states no i mean whether it's a dollar whether it's a pound sterling whether it's a, a gold, a, a piece of gold, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a diamond, yeah. whatever a it is, like whatever we're using thing. as a, as a, as an, a, 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 an exchange. Yeah. Okay. So it's very tangible and it's, it's, um, completely objective. Okay. Mm-hmm. But again, this is not an, like this, 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 um, this, uh, association of intangible time with tangible money doesn't just naturally occur. It has to be constructed. The association has to be forged, fought over. Uh, and again, this is a, a seemingly universal idea that time is money and that moments spent in non-productive time is wasted time or that we can lose time, save time or make up time. They're all rooted in the idea that time and money are linked. Again, a thing we we had to create. Excuse me. We have hourly wages. We have Super Bowl ads that are charged by the second. We have lawyers who charge by the minute, right? And we accept all of these as if they are just sort of natural processes, but they aren't, right? There are, and there are lots of famous warnings about all of these associations. Um, I mean, nobody listened, but like there were these warnings, or they did, they didn't care. But like, I think it's worth again, we're thinking about the 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 contest over these ideas. So one of the most obvious examples to me about uh, that is uh, as a warning about these things is uh, the White Rabbit in Lewis Carroll's uh, 1865 classic Alice in Wonderland. Uh-huh. The harried, frenetic, bureaucrat white rabbit who has been ground down, crushed even by the pressures of time, whose life is literally dictated by clock time and who stands, you know, I mean, like, he, like remember, like he's like, if if he doesn't adhere to whatever the clock time says, he will literally lose his head. Right. Um, and he's just, you know, he's a ground down, stuttering mess because he's been he's been crushed by the weight of time. And he stands in perfect contrast to Alice with her youthful exuberance, right? Reflected in more kind of event time orientation as opposed to um, this clock time orientation. Like she flutters from event to event when she spontaneously determines that it is time to move along as opposed to the white rabbit whose entire life is dictated by this mechanical time, you know, time device. Right. That's so. So, again, there's a the difference between clock time and, and sort of event or task time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so, she, you know, that's when she decides to move along. Edgar Allan Poe. Sorry. Edgar Allan Poe, 
wrote uh, frequently to raise the alarm about the tyranny of the clock. So take, for example, he has a story in 1838 called A Predicament, in which uh, the main character, Signora Psyche Zenobia, whose uh, behavior is described in this the whole short story in these mechanistic terms. She is following the dictates of this of Blackstone, and she can only follow exactly what Blackstone has. What's well, Blackstone is a magazine. Well, only what Blackstone has published as rules for life. So she's very mechanistic. She has to follow these rules exactly, right? Follow the mechanics as mm-hmm. they're laid out. Okay, so uh, so that's how she's described. And she uh, in the story she cli- goes up to the top of this 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 hill, the top of the city, and she finds this. Um, she sees this. Uh, this huge clock way at the very top and there's a keyhole as there used to be. You used to have to put a key in to wind, mm-hmm. you know, a big... so there's a keyhole um, in the, the face of the clock and she puts her head through in order to look out uh, to sort of, you know, um, to, to, you know, look out on the other side of the clock, this huge clock face. And when she does, she gazes upon this sublime vision and uh, Poe uses the word sublime a lot. And he almost always uses it to describe uh, the vastness of nature, the kind of limitless uh, imaginative possibilities of nature, right? Mm-hmm. Something completely counter to clock time, which is mechanistic, right? So she gazes out through this clock, this this keyhole, and she sees the sublime vision of nature. And even in the story, she she says, "I won't bother you with the description of it. I'm not going to tell you what I saw. I'm just going to tell you then what happened to me after that." Right. So, I mean, even in this, she's mechanistic in her approach. She can't even try to imagine the words necessary to describe the sublime. Instead, she's just going to describe the process of what happened. Right. So, again, Mm -hmm. there's this really clear association that Poe does Um, while she's standing there. She's literally standing on the shoulders of a slave and she's contemplating or she tells us she's contemplating the untold possibilities of this sublime vision. Until suddenly she feels cold steel upon her neck. She turns her head slightly and realizes it's the minute hand of the giant clock that has ticked down to where her head is through at the keyhole. And when she tries to extricate herself from the keyhole, she finds she's stuck. And she now had to wait in horror minute by minute as the pressure on her neck increased until her eyes bulge and pop from her head. And then her neck is severed or her head is severed from her, from her body. Sweet. And rolls down, rolls down the hill. She writes, she's still the author of the story. So she's writing from the afterlife, right? Nice. And I like how Poe writes. She was eventually decapitated. And he writes quote, she, that she died quote at 25 minutes past five in the afternoon. Again, pointing out the, the specificity of the mechanistic, this sort of mechanistic clock time. Right. Oh, sorry. At 25 minutes past five in the afternoon, precisely. Zenobia was literally crushed by time while imaginative possibilities were in front of her. But because she couldn't see past the mechanistic existence she was living, she couldn't go and pursue those imaginative sublime possibilities. She was trapped. There's so many people. So many people. Right. She was trapped by time. And. You know, he's writing this in 1838, right? I mean, so we're talking about like right in the heart of when we're talking. Yes, many people are exactly like that. It's 
Uh, Poe is a remarkably poignant writer even today. Like if you go through and and read him, it's amazing how much his uh, how much of his stuff holds up in terms of like the 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 ideas that he's presenting. They're almost trapped. They're trapped by life. Their life. Well, no, because life rut. is spread out. Before, spread, life is spread out in front of her, and she recognizes the beauty. She recognizes the sublimity, sublimity, but she can't. She can't act on it because she's trapped by time. We're going to talk about another post story a little later, a uh, story that gives this episode its title. But we'll get to that later. I just want to say descriptions like this by Poe. Uh, by Lewis Carroll, again, writing in 1865, you know, these um, reflect the anxieties that a lot of people felt over the adoption of clock time, replacing kind of a natural idea of time. We're going to just sort of deal with this idea a lot in this episode. So with these anxieties in mind, let's look at clock time in the antebellum South. So mechanical clocks of some variety had existed for hundreds of years before the the sort of uh, 19th century. Excuse me, but they were not, they weren't uh, especially accurate. They were pro- prohibitively expensive until the Industrial Revolution. And then the cuckoo clocks came. Well, as you say, in the invention of the pendulum clock in the, the middle of the 17th century was cuckoo. the first innovation that made clocks really um, accurate. So, uh, but who of course, was the first know, to make the birdie come out? Who was the first to make the little birdie come out? Cuckoo, I, I don't cuckoo. Know. Dr. Cuckoo Kazoo. I don't know. That's <laughs> the, the trivia for the day. Come on now. You're the yeah, genius yeah, of yeah. this group. I don't know, but, uh, okay. But yeah, I don't know. All I know is that pendulum clocks make things a little bit, make finally make things accurate. Um, in the American colonies, um, and then the United States, uh, mechanical, oh, mechanical. And then after around 1830, uh, I'm sorry, 1840 electric clock manufacturing centered in new England. So they were mechanical clocks. And then by 1840, they started making electric clocks. Um, uh, they were centered in new England and especially Connecticut as uh, industrialization took hold, this becomes like a big, big boon for Connecticut in particular, but elsewhere in New England as well. Now, we talked about the process of de-skilling and the shift from workshop to factory production of goods way back in the beginning when we did our Robert Matthews episodes. Um, oh. We talked about him as a journeyman craftsman who kind of gets screwed by the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, those developments of sort of workshop to factory production and all that they occurred primarily in the northern states and and in the cities to some degree, maybe in the south a little bit, but but mostly this is a northern state phenomenon. They kind of developed hand and glove uh, these these processes, developed hand and glove with industrial manufacturing. I'm sorry, developing hand and glove with industrial manufacturing was the desire by industrial and urban managers to use clock time to accurately track labor and output. Again, these are things we sort of accept as normal today, but like this is a process. Um, the emergence of what we call like time discipline or cro- clock regulated work were intimately forged with the emergence of capitalism. So understand that time discipline, again, it had to be created, had to be shaped by larger forces of commodification and rationalization. Uh, commodification, of course, being the process of increasingly transforming uh, raw materials and services into goods for market. Things that weren't raw materials before become raw materials now. Um, right. You know, that sort of thing. Things that things that used to just be part of the commons uh, were now becoming commodified, right? Yep. And uh, with the consequence, uh, transitioning them from their specific, those items from their specific use value into a kind of market value. 
So again, uh, an item used to be valued for what what it's you know, the value was uh, based on what it was used for its specific use, and now there's just a general market value for these commodities. Uh, rationalization is the process of increasing efficiency in production by reducing cost. Usually, this means uh, cutting labor. Right, so you know, killing jobs, as mm-hmm. you might say, the automation saving time, killing jobs. Yeah. So, for example, under feudalism, uh, serfs or peasants, depending on where where we're talking about, had uh, guaranteed housing. They had protection provided by the manorial lords, and they also had lands for agriculture or artisanship. Um, <clears throat> so, you know. They um, they didn't have very much social mobility. Children generally did the same work as their parents. Uh, occasionally, a child might be uh, sent off to uh, apprentice in one of the guilds or something like that. But uh, when they're because there happened to be uh, a growing need for one industry or another, or, you know, one craft or another. Uh, but generally speaking, you just did what your parents did, and uh, and that's where we get names like uh, Thatcher because she comes from a line of people who used to do thatched roofs or. Uh, Smith, because they were probably blacksmiths, maybe, you know, uh, usually goldsmith uh, names like goldsmith or silver all come from former silversmiths and goldsmiths and things like that. You get names like or, uh, Chandler. Or Moorhead. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Moorhead. <clears throat> Moorhead. My, yeah, my uh, my favorite uh, was a figure. First name, I, first name Craven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I encountered a guy one time. uh named uh richard clapsaddle and i thought uh, i'm not really sure where that family name comes from like dick clapsaddle um i don't don't quite know uh you know in the 16th century how you uh since names are you know things like johnson means like you, you're like tim johnson because like you're tim johnson uh, <laughs> you, you know or, or like john jameson well because you're john james son son yeah, yeah, and um, but yeah, so that's where like you know a lot of the surnames all come from that kind of stuff. Uh, Cooper means you know you're from a long line of barrel makers, you know. Um, Taylor, you know, because you come from a long line of tailors, right? Weaver. I mean, all these names are pretty understandable. Yep. Hi, anyway, <clears throat> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's little social mobility, right? Um, but work was, for all intents and purposes, work was guaranteed. You were guaranteed a job, and um, the way that feudalism worked was that some percentage of the produce of the land was paid in rent to the landlords, you know, right? These manorial lords, literal lords of the land. And then what you made yourself, like the surpluses that you made were exchanged at kind of highly regulated markets. The markets were regulated by the guilds. Um, so, you know, they, they, the guild system, generally speaking, um, worked to by and large, make sure that necessities were affordable. Uh, you know, s- small luxuries were affordable. You, they tended to keep things be, while people wanted to make profit in order to uh, exchange. There was no thought of of accumulating wealth among regular folks. That didn't really exist yet. Not for most people. That sort of comes later. But you know, um, you you know. Anyway, the um, the whole system was essentially held together by like mutual obligations and relationships. Um, but uh, I, I want to point out for laborers. The work was dictated not by any sort of mechanical time that didn't exist through most of this time, but like, but dictated by natural rhythms, right? The natural, natural, uh, natural cycles of, of solar time, the natural cycle of seasonal time, um, you know, these natural rhythms of, of, you know, rain and drought and all of that stuff. 
um, and by personal choices. Like there wasn't necessarily anybody there making you work. Um, you worked when you wanted to work. You were paid by task. If you were a craftsman, you didn't get paid. You know, like if you went into to blacksmith for 10 hours, you didn't get paid for 10 hours work. You got paid for however many horses you shod. You got paid for how like each task came with its own w- whatever wage. Right. Mm-hmm. I thought you were frozen. You haven't moved. Okay. Now <laughs> I want, I want you to hear this and understand this. Okay. The average European peasant worked about 50 days a year to meet their how many 50 some days a year. Five zero, about 50 days a year okay. in order to meet their, in order to meet their rent obligations. Okay. So, so the rest of the year they had to work for themselves in whatever way they wanted to. Okay. Um, the estimate is generally the peasants work the, the equivalent of about 150 days total. So 50 for the Lord and a hundred days for themselves. And they have the rest of the year for, um, you know, for festivals and just doing whatever they felt like doing. Mm-hmm. It should also be noted the hundred days a year that they're working for themselves. You know, they're working for themselves, right? They're working for their own profit and advantage. Um, I've seen people say, oh, it was backbreaking labor and everything else. Sure. But there is a difference when you're doing backbreaking labor so that someone else gets the the full measure of that, the value of that labor, and you're just getting a percentage as a wage versus you're doing backbreaking labor, but it's for your family's benefit. You get to keep all of it. You do it all. Sure. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's for you. So yeah, sure. It's still work, obviously, but there is, there is a difference between sweeping your own floor and sweeping yes. someone else's. It's the entrepreneur versus the worker. Except those words don't mean anything to uh, the, you know, to the feudal surf. But they didn't mean anything then. They didn't realize, yeah, yeah. It, but they were entrepreneurs mm. in a way. I mean, they, they have their own business, I mean, you right? Didn't, they you didn't, themselves. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it that. They didn't really have a business. They just, um, they had what they needed. Now, barring war or natural disaster, peasants ate fairly well um, fr- from a caloric standpoint, right? They ate pretty nutrient-rich, uh, if obviously bland, diets. Now, they're bland mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. Number one, Europe uh, doesn't really have access to any spices. So, you know, that's one thing. Um, they also, you know, this is before uh, anybody figured out uh, yep. that you could uh, have ovens. So pretty much all you really ate were things like soups and stews. Uh, so that you could keep a fire burning and keep a pot cooking over the over the fire, and you would, excuse me, you'd make a stew with whatever stuff, and you just sort of add to it over the next few days, you know, and just keep keep, you know, they called it pottage. Uh, like but you crock, know, you just sort like of the crock pot. They did a crock. Yeah, they, pot. Have, they had a crock pot going for like you know six days at a time before you you know sort of dump it and start fresh. Um, but you wouldn't dump there it. You you'd, you'd eat everything. But and then you had and you had real dense like you know real dense breads you know i mean like whole grain real bread you know so you had a pretty they had a pretty nutrient dense uh diet or nutrient rich diet you know they got a lot of they fair amount of calories Mm -hmm. if they were bland but they didn't know they were bland because they had never tried anything else um it's one of the the great things is like european like western northern europeans uh, people's minds were blown when they got their first uh like black pepper coming back from the crusades and they were just like oh my god this this is amazing this is like it's like a spicy little burst in your mouth and you're like you think today like salt and pepper on every table everywhere you go it's mm-hmm. the most mundane of the seasonings and yet like if you can imagine never having access to that to black pepper the first time you would taste it would just be like like holy cow like this is it's so much out of such a small thing there's so much you know explosion of flavor when all you had ever eaten your whole life were like roots and potatoes and maybe a little bit of meat boiled in a pot. Um, 
to all of a sudden have pepper. I was like, oh, mind blowing. Anyway, um, yeah, like I said, guilds tightly controlled the markets, um, but beers, wines, and mead, meads were all plentiful. Um, love it. Pretty much drank beer, wine, and mead all day. Um, love it. And th- because they were necessary, because water would kill you. Uh, so you, you drank, you know, a fair amount of those things. Um, and then certain necessary resources like land were not commodities. They were not commodified. So, you know, there was, uh, there were the commons that were shared lands. And then you had the lands of the Lord that you had to farm, you know, as part of your, your rent agreement. Um, so time discipline, such as it was, was kind of marked by the ringing of church bells to call the monks to prayer and to celebrate the many, 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 many public holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, so for laborers, time was generally their own or more accurately, it was God's time, you know, um, but, but, you know, by which I mean, they were able to kind of do what they wanted. Um, you know, if you didn't do enough work, you would starve, but you're working for yourself most of the time. Uh, again, I don't want to like put, um, put too shiny, a glossy coat on feudalism. I mean, it was also a time where if you cut yourself on a piece of metal, you know, you probably died, um, you know, pretty awful death. I mean, like, listen, that's, that doesn't sound terrible, what you just described, but I would imagine living back then sucked. Just, just, sure. but it would have, but it's one of those things. It would have sucked no matter how you, no, no matter how you look at it. It's, sure. it's like, so, okay. Sorry to digress real quick. Like, you know, there, we have this imagination where it's like, oh, well, but if you were a king or a Lord, things would be great. No, like Kings and Lords, because, um, because eating meat was such a status symbol, and like so, like the peasants would eat like mostly veg. We'd have a diet that was mostly vegetables and cereal grains, mm-hmm. and they'd have a little bit of meat, you know, um, some some pork or some chicken, uh, occasionally some beef, but but pretty, you know, very small amounts of meat during the course of their their diet. Um, red meat, especially rare. Uh, whereas you know, the the lords and the the ladies and the ma- and the kings and all, they eat like all meat, like all meat and bread. That's all they eat. So. Just all of the annals of history uh, are, are just like littered with just a constant who's who of of uh, of European of, of rich, powerful Europeans. Well, rich is the wrong word. Powerful Europeans <laughs> who like are just plagued constantly with hemorrhoids, with gout. Uh, they just none of none of them take a good shit like their entire life because all they eat is meat all the time, and like they're just. They're just miserable. They're all blocked up all the, t- all the time. Like just constantly, it's either diarrhea or it's, or it's, you can't go and you have hemorrhoids. Um, Martin Luther sort of famously, like in all of his writings, he basically describes everything, uh, in terms of, of his anus. Like, I mean, he just like Ugh. tells, oh, he just tells priests all the time that he's like, he's like just shitting on their work. He, when he's dying at the end of his life, he refers to himself as a, as a stool that is waiting to pass through the anus of, uh, of death, pass through the anus to death. Um, I mean, like it's, they're obsessed with this stuff because n- n- none of the, and Martin Luther, like was one of these guys, he's rich, uh, you know, for the time, you know, he had, he had he came from a wealthy family and, and had, had access to nothing but meat. And so, so like these guys, they were miserable. Uh, they're just miserable all the time. I mean, if you can imagine just like living your whole life, never being able to take a good dump, how just how absolutely miserable you'd be by say twenty five. Um, I mean, they probably also their fucking mouth was probably killing them. Their teeth probably was oh, rotten out. Sure, 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 yeah. sure. No, they, <laughs> they probably all dropped any number of, of reasons by forty. Yeah, any yeah. number of reasons why life was miserable. But that's the one. That's the one thing I think about because it's the thing you do. At, you, you know, you do like every day. You take, or, you take for granted yeah. the comfort that we have. We're yeah, here yeah, in our yeah. days, and they're like, um, you know, they don't have. 
I don't know what they, they had a hole in the in a in a in like some wooden thing that's thought. <sighs> Yeah, if you uh, if you ever see those uh, like old medieval castle buildings that have like the on the corner yes, they have like I know the ground exactly. Thing yeah, yes, that was the I've that's seen the, uh, the diagram yeah. where they show how it's done and it's yep. it's just a hole and you sit on like a stone with a hole in it. Yep, Oof. and you just drop on down. Not, not comfortable. <clears throat> yeah, there's a there's a great story from history where a bunch of uh, rich dukes, German dukes, all get together to like uh, during the during, during the wars of religion. And they all get together to plot uh, their, their, what they're going to do. And uh, and the floor collapses. And underneath the floor is all just raw sewage that's been just like collecting over just Ugh. who knows. And they sink in and they uh, they all drown and die in, uh, in raw sewage. So they all die. It's just you gotta like do that story. Just horrific stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, anyway. So I, my point is, I just I don't want to make this sound like you know too too wonderful or anything because it wasn't that, but like it was miserable for everybody. Even like the rich and powerful were miserable. Okay, uh, but you know as far as time is concerned, laborers time was generally their own, or more accurately, it belonged to the church. But still, like in their day to day life, they had a lot of control over what they did. Um, okay, the Protestant Reformation in many ways ushered in the beginning ideas of time discipline by promoting the idea that. All time was God's time. Now, you know, the, the, uh, the, social, the social relationship with the church had always been like, hey, look, you know, you jump through these hoops, hoops you, 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 uh, you uh, pay for your indulgences and you, you tithe your, your 10% and, and basically you're going to get into heaven. That's kind of how this deal works. We're going to mediate for you between you and God. And like, you, you gotta, you gotta come to the festivals and everything else, but don't worry. There's going to be lots of wine and beer and mead and, and there's going to be a big feast and you've got to come to these different things. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta check all the boxes, but if you check all the boxes, good for you, you get to heaven. And with Luther basically breaking this down and saying, well, no, like none of this is in the Bible. Um, and then, you know, the sort of German princes who are like, wait, so we could have a cheaper religion. We're in, um, they, Basically, it, it so changes this dynamic. Like now, because you know Luther is like writing his own uh, translation of of the Bible in vernacular German, and so now you are there's no mediator. The mediator's gone, right? You don't mm-hmm. need the church. You can read the Bible yourself, and so the time doesn't belong to the the liturgical church calendar so much as time now is more directly God's time, right? So uh, it becomes really important not to waste your time with things that you're, that you shouldn't be doing. You have to be productive with your time, right? This is kind of an essential component. We call it like the Puritan work ethic, but that's where it sort of comes from is it's the natural development of these ideas of like, well, if all time is, you know, we are only here by the whim of God and all of our time is God's own. We're supposed to be spending all of our time. uh, All of our, all of our existence is supposed to be for the glory of, of of him. God, all, all of our time is God's time. Uh-huh. And this, and so then that sort of grows over time into this idea that like, well, you can't waste time. You have to be time thrifty. You, you know, what I mean, you're you you have to be productive all the time. If you're you have to give an account for every every moment later. So okay, so just again, I'm I'm laying the groundwork for where this goes. Um, so okay, so uh, this is really an essential idea because of the early change in this uh, conception of time that was brought about by the Reformation. This sort of in turn gives rise to mercantilism, which as I know you know, but the economic policy that sort of favors the use of state power to push for uh, greater exports, fewer imports, and the accumulation of precious metal money into state coffers. Um, there's this kind of idea that like 
whoever has the most gold wins. So you just accumulate. Like that's the uh-huh. goal is to accumulate as much as possible. Um, and you do that by like protectionist tariffs and, uh, and colonialization. That's where colon, where the colonies really come in is like, well, we need to bring resources in from outside so that we're not paying for resources, right? We can uh-huh. extract them from our own colonies and so on. So mercantilism stressed that while some time was God's time, time was also money. Thus, it needs to be saved and not wasted for, for reasons that were both sacred and secular, right? And again, it's like another little shift in the way people think about time. Uh-huh. The, mercant- the mercantilism that encouraged colonialism and imperialism was baked into America's founding. Right. Coupling these ideas with industrialization led to an increasing use of urban and factory clocks to regulate and coordinate personal, social and economic activity. Right. So clocks become sort of start to be used in the north, in particular with industrial, the industrial north to regulate not just your economic activity, like your work, your labor or whatever, but also your personal life, your social life. As the availability and affordability of clocks improve, their adoption spread beyond urban centers. Uh, steamboats, telegraphs, and railroads would spread this new time discipline far beyond the borders of the cities and the ports. And in the process, they disseminated these ideas about wage labor time and that clock time should be obeyed and that punctuality was a civic and personal virtue. These are all sort of new ideas that get spread by, you know, these new transportation technologies as people, right, take them out. These ideas Uh enhance the legitimacy of uh, the idea of free wage uh, labor, and they usher in a world that becomes governed by the clock, right? In the industrial north, the appeal of the system makes some sense. It is, uh, or at least seems to be consistent with uh, the burgeoning ideas of liberal democracy. Uh-huh. And, you know, like if you can sell your labor, that sort of seems consistent with dem- democratic ideas. And it's especially useful to industrial bosses and sort of bourgeois managers, um, you know, because then they can regulate labor through the clock. The appeal is also pretty clear in like the mine and trim, uh, timber driven uh, West, right? Which is expanding in this early period. But the real question that we're, we're going to kind of try and look at is where might clock discipline fit in the antebellum South, right? Which is essentially an oligarchic economic structure, right? Um, you know, it's, it's all the, the South is oligarchy. It's an oligarchy. Okay. Southern planners uh, were, of course, no less profit motivated than their Yankee neighbors, but they were no less inclined to uh, they're no less inclined to understand the production of commodities. But when they looked to the north, they were afraid of what they saw as um, a mobocratic tendency or an anarchic, you know, anarchy tendency in the system of free wage labor when it was coupled with liberal democracy. Right. They were worried about the idea of mob rule. As you might imagine, Southern planters would be. Are you with me? I'm with you. Okay. I want you to just listen to that sentence again and think about how, like, um, you know what I'm saying here. Southern I'm planters. To, yeah. Uh-huh. They were afraid of the idea of a kind of liberal democracy. They were afraid of the idea of mob rule in the South. Okay. Because they're Southern planters. So they are especially afraid of the idea of majority rule. Sure. Um, because, because they would be immediately gibbeted. Well, because they don't. You know, I mean, it's a handful of planners, and then and then huge numbers of enslaved people, but also just like poor whites and everybody else. It's like so they are very much afraid of the idea of liberal democracy in the South. They're afraid of 
um, losing the free labor um, aspect of it because that's what would cause the uprising because they're really it's slavery. Um, but I think what they're also afraid of, and probably what would what would hold them at bay is is providing a wage right for that for that work no they are they are they absolutely see that as the most terrifying idea oh i'm sure uh, they do imaginable. i'm sure they do um but, not but as, it's also not just the but keep in mind like everybody that lives every white person in the south is not a planter like there are lots of poor whites there sure. are lots of sort of yeomen sure and planters are an oligarchy they are a small thin veneer of at the top of society who control all of society. Well, it's it's no different than today, right? The top one percent of today, and you would think they would be probably dragged into the street and ripped apart as well if it wasn't for uh, all the the wages. Like, there's a lot of rich people that become rich, and a lot of a lot of otherwise would be poor people that now can pay bills and make ends meet because of, say, a company that they're working for. Otherwise, it wasn't for that. I think these billionaires obviously would be. You know, they'd be hunted down probably themselves today. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, I want you to understand that, like, for the 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 planter class, there is nothing like there is nothing more terrifying than this combination of the free wage labor coupled with liberal democracy. Like, they see that as yes, uh, mobocratic, and 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 they see it as anarchy. Yes. Okay. And cutting into so, all their profit. Yeah, it's not even. Ju- it's it's more than just that. It's much more than just that. Sure. For Southern planters, slavery was as much about uh, social control as it was about profit. Mm -hmm. The system preserved the hierarchic social order that put them at the top of society. So in many ways, their their, uh, power was as, if not more important than their profit. It was was certainly uh, as important. Um, The system preserved, sorry, sorry. Um, So this, this, uh, their their role at the top of the, the social hierarchy was to them the only way that they could, you could actually be truly independent. So they saw slavery as necessary mm-hmm. for their own independence. It's uh it's one of the the main contradictions of the system. Okay. As um there's a the German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel explained in his uh, sort of famous master slave dialect, dialectic quote the master is in possession of an overabundance of physical necessities generally the slave in the lack thereof. The master's situation is independent and his essential nature is to be for himself, end quote. By contrast, the slave is characterized by the lack of recognition, is viewed as a thing, quote, thinghood is the essence of slave consciousness, end quote. But here's the thing. Hegel pointed out the master is only independent so long as the slave remains in this state of slave consciousness. In other words, Hegel believed that as soon as the slave stopped seeing himself as a slave, mm-hmm. it, he would at that moment cease to be a slave. But he's very specific about what that means. Because like in reality, as Hegel pointed out, the master is actually the one who is dependent. The master is completely dependent on the slave for the very overabundance that makes the master independent, right? So mm-hmm. if slave consciousness, if this belief, like this belief that slaves have that they are slaves, as Hegel sees it, the contradiction of the situation would be laid bare and the masters would immediately lose their independence, right? Because the only thing that makes them independent, 
they're not independent. They're completely dependent on slaves. So the only thing that makes them independent is this sort of delusion of it, enslavement that enslaved people have. It's, Does it's, that make sense? It's like controlling people with fear. And if people mm-hmm. stop fearing you, then they you lose control of them. So, sure. you know, yes. that that's kind of the same concept. It's the same thing today with like, when you look at like the railroad strike that didn't happen mm-hmm. and it's like the, the railroad workers have all the power mm-hmm. they have, they are the, or they, they, if they believe themselves to, they do sure because they're the ones providing the necessary labor. The railroad yes. bosses are worthless without them. Correct. If they were all gone, there would be no industry. That's and I so, think that speaks to every business. Which, exactly yes. right it's the people at the bottom that have all yep. the power yep. but they are held in check by a variety of social forces correct like held in check meaning they are they are prevented from from achieving their own actual ind- their actual independence correct right which but uh, like um i think i say it later but hegel basically sort of points out that like the only way that you actually achieve independence is at the moment that you are like you have an actual willingness to die because if you're willing to die mm-hmm. Like at the moment you're actually literally willing to die is the moment that you prove that you're not a slave, right? Because somebody else doesn't own your life. You own your life and you're willing to lose it to prove your independence, right? So that's the only way to sort of get out of this relationship. And it's the same thing with like a, a strike. You know, if you were go, you go on strike, you know that the police are going to be called out. They're going to crack your skulls. The police might shoot at you. The National Guard might be called out to shoot at you. They've done this is all this is the history of labor history. And and so you all you know that you could die if you go on strike. Well, I, I think because yes, you're because you while you have the power as the labor, they have the power with the money and the backing of state violence. Yes, I mean listen, that what you're stating is stating is true, it's historically accurate uh, with the labor movement, but in modern times, like when I say modern times, I mean like in twenty twenty two um, this, there's no real violence anymore. And like most of these, it's most of these, absolutely there most is, of right? these companies like Verizon went on strike. You see them, they pick it, you go downtown, you see like some business will be on strike and there'll be people picketing. And the, the, the violence now is more, is more of a financial violence. It's more of a social violence where, um, the decision isn't, you know, do I go on strike and face police brutality and, and the other side of the, of the line beat me with clubs. Now it's, do I go on strike and face the possibility of losing my job or not being able to pay my bills because I'm not making money while I'm on, on the picket line. And that's right. But again, today's... but te- if you tease that out farther, mm-hmm. you, the, those notions of independence continue like those notions of dependence rather. Sure. It's the same. Far, if, if you keep, yes, teasing, I get it. Yep. It's not you're not just dependent on your employer. You're also dependent on your bank who who has the mortgage on your house. Yep. You're dependent on the the bank that has the mortgage or has the the lien on your car. And you're dependent on you're dependent on this economic system in order to get food because you can't because you know because the system is such that so and that, it's layer and, upon and, layer upon layer of dependence. And if we keep peeling that onion, that's why I I also fight for and like to fight for the small business owner because that is an employee breaking free for independence, creating his own business from typically a skill they acquired or whatever from a larger company. They didn't want to be in the rat race anymore, so they broke broke open, they broke away, they decided to start their own business. And that's what is so wonderful about the country we live in, that the ability they have the ability to do that. That's why I a proponent of, you know, 
tax breaks for small business owners, doing everything we can to help them to create those, you know, opportunities. And then hopefully it entices other people to do the same thing. And that's kind of the battle for time. People create, start their own business. So that way they have their own time that they can spend with family and do, you know, things that they want to do instead of working a nine to five. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to get there. Um, but hey, look, our country's built off of the entrepreneur. It's built off of the small business owner. What we have to really be afraid of is the big Amazons of the world, the Walmarts of the world that gobble up all the small business owners now. And that's that's the scariest trend, that and the AI and the independent. Well, and, you know. Yeah, I can't get into this too much, but I would also, I, the, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is uh, is equally scary, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but that's, that's, you know, we have both uh, competing factions. My point about all this is just that, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. My, and and I'm not I'm not going to argue with you about about the this uh, but yeah the point is exactly that 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 yeah there is a um there there is uh, something about there's something built into independence you know into this idea of like once you acknowledge like you have to you have to um again just dealing with this master slave situation you you have to be willing to die and deprive the person who claims your life by declaring that it's your life to give up. Right. Like that's, that's kind of, it has to be that dramatic as it were Mm -hmm. in order to prove. Okay. So anyway, um, okay. So this is as Hegel is concerned for, as far as Hegel's concerned, the only way that you can really demonstrate your humanity is to prove that you own your humanness. And the only way to do that, of course, is to risk literal, literal death because anything short of that threatens to return you to thingness, Mm -hmm. right? So as most humans do, the vast majority choose life over true freedom. Mm -hmm. They choose, you know, they, they choose the the, the convenience of continuing to live Mm -hmm. rather than the, the very risky proposition that you might die. Correct. Right. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the things where people are like, God, you know, if slave, you know, with slaves outnumbered, uh, planters significantly all the time, like in all kinds of places and all that, why weren't there more rebellions? Well, because you know if you rise up some people will die and and that is a hard thing to do mm-hmm. like you know how, look at how far i mean americans are pushed i mean the re- regular people working class people have been crushed in this country for years mm-hmm. decades and and just continue to not rise up um, part of that is because there's a culture but like cuz you look at like france they're talking about reducing the uh, the retirement age by 2 years and they've got a million people in the streets like you know with molotov cocktails at the ready and um, they're like, hell no, like we're retired. We will retire at 64. Yeah. Screw you. And um, and, you know, because they have, they have a, a more radical tradition baked in. But it's like in this country, they, they could literally just be like, you can start getting Social Security when you're 85. And like and everybody be like, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. I mean, it's just, it, you know, we, we are uh, I, I we should be embarrassed when we look around the world at how people fight for stuff. And like, there are people here that do, but like most of us are just like, well, I'd rather live. Um, <laughs> anyway, here's the thing. Southern planters uh, recognized that recognized their precarious position, right? They understood that their independence just, you know, was uh, uh, that their independence was actually kind of dependence on, you know, the, these, these bonds people. So because of that, of course, Southern planters could never actually be agents of progress uh, 
because by being an agent of progress, they would annihilate their own position. Right. So like they could not, I mean, like you would have to be willing to annihilate your own position in order to do that. Sure. And again, there have been people that have done this in the past, but generally speaking, that's uh, even harder to do. So, okay. That said, Southern planners still wanted to be seen as modern and they were increasingly engaged in this sort of expanding capitalist world of the early 19th century. Historians Eric Williams and C.L.R. James convincing, have both convincingly argued that plantation slavery was quintessentially a modern institution of capitalist exploitation, uh, just as the historian Marcus Redeker has shown that the slave ship operated as a kind of capitalist factory, transforming the raw material of humanity into an enslaved commodity across the, you know, in, in the transatlantic passage, right? You pick up a raw, you pick up raw materials and you, the, the process of the, of the horrific transatlantic, the transatlantic middle passage, because it was so horrible, so cruel, so violent, so everything else, by the time you arrived on the other side, the process of turning those raw material human beings into the commodity of slaves had, had taken root for many people, mm-hmm. right? Does that make sense? Yes. I'd like to do a, a podcast on his book on the, his book called The Slave Ship someday. That would be anyway, interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> it's it's a very cool book. It's a really uh, very creative uh, read on slave ships. Very did, uh, very interesting. Did any of them break off and become black pirates? Uh, it it did. It does happen. I've got a I've got a cool book called um, that I read uh, called Blackjacks about uh, about uh, African Americans in the Age of Sail who became pirates or they became sailors or they became private, you know, work for privateers or whatever else. Uh, many of them being former slaves, not all of them, but most of them were former slaves. It's, it's a pretty cool. That's another pretty cool book. That's anyway, an, that would be an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, that's it. I want to do a story about that stuff. Uh, one of these days, excuse me. Anyway, regardless of that, the, the antebellum South was more like a mercantilist capitalist uh, vision. So again, that idea of like, you know, extracting raw materials and then turning them to commodities and accumulating wealth internally, right? Um, trying to keep, trying to keep exports high and imports low, but they sort of fail at that, but that's their vision. And, uh, this is a vision that would seem less likely to require, require or even desire clock time because again, the agricultural nature of it. But yet throughout the 19th century, we see that the number of clocks and watches in the South Increased greatly, right? So, uh, furthermore, we have significant evidence that planters tried to instill clock discipline into their enslaved populations and in their own lives. So, remember, by 1860, Southerners were willing to reject liberal democracy and its kind of spouse, free wage labor, and they were willing to reject this with a kind of suicidal passion that was the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, it's interesting to look at how and why they went about implementing one of the most potent tools that had been used to implement the very systems that they would then suicidally reject. Right. So why would they use those tools and like, how do they go about doing it? Cause obviously they can't use clock labor in the same way they do in the North because that is dependent on wage free wage labor. And it's dependent on liberal democracy to function. Right. So, so they're going to, so anyway, okay. So the benign liberal view of uh, classical economists like uh, Adam Smith is that workers were not naturally lazy. And if they behaved as they, as if they were uh, lazy, it was because of insufficient motivation to do otherwise. People like Adam Smith, called the father of capitalism, he equated wage with time, um, and believed that like you could induce labor or workers to labor 
out of the kind of spirit spirit of acquisition, right? If you offer them enough, they'll work harder, right? In other words, it wasn't the uh, people don't want to work anymore. It was people are unwilling to work if you aren't motivating them with higher wages, right? Like that's the Adam Smith kind of philosophy. That was actually correct up until just recently, actually, you know, to, I mean, that was that philosophy worked until absolutely just recently. And then it kind of flip-flopped because of the new labor issues going on. Very interesting. I mean, I think if you still offered enough money, people would do whatever, but like, um, you know, a lot of most, nowadays it's wages used to be number one. Now it's uh culture is number one. So uh, a lot of, a, I don't think so. A lot of, <clears throat> a lot of individuals, especially in the trades who are offering, you know, a dollar more than their competitors and still unable to fill positions are always wondering why. And, a lot of analytic companies have gone in and, and started really asking the question, you know, why would someone work for you? And and then owners and business leaders started asking that question and started revamping everything from the recruiting process to the onboarding process to not only is it salary based, but now employees want to have more input in decision making and they want to be a part of the actual business, meaning they want to make a difference. <gasps> they want to make a difference. They want more democracy. Yes. They want more democracy in the workplace. But pay, actually, they want fair pay. But pay has dropped down the scale from number one to maybe like number four these days, believe it or not. Now, not saying people don't want to work for money and not saying they're going to give you a break, but they just want fair pay, not where it used to be. I want I want more than this guy. I want to make you know, you offer me a buck more, I'm there, right? That was the attitude, like yeah. money talks and BS walks type of shit. Sure. Now it's, you know, I want to be cuddled. I want my safe space. I want my time off. I want, you know, my, I want to bring my dog to work. I want to, you know, I want all a better, this a, other a better work-life balance. Absolutely. The work-life balance, quote, unquote, is the signature call of that, I guess, generation that has come through and changed where it used to be the employer had all the, the, the leverage. Now the employee has all the leverage. And, um, well, that's why we have an inflation is because, um, the reason we have an inflation is because they're trying to, uh, reassert control. The employers are. So they're trying to discipline labor. I mean, there there are other reasons. Well, but the I don't reason think they're a, pushing back as a much. Well, I mean, I don't know. They are when when to the evolve. central when the central bank keeps announcing, well, I guess we're going to have to keep raising interest rates until more people get fired. Um, they're it's very clear that they're trying to discipline labor. They're not saying, well, we're going to have to uh, we're we're going to have to tighten the the belt on uh, what businesses are able to do until they bring wages up. We're going to have to bring you know until they bring inflation down. They're, they're not doing that. They're saying we're going to punish labor. And once labor gets punished enough, then, um, you know, if, if labor gets punished enough, then they'll be desperate enough to work for nothing. And that will bring inflation down. I mean, that's the goal is to drive wage. I mean, they've said, I mean, Jerome Powell has flat out said we, we're going to raise interest rates because unemployment isn't high enough and because wages are still too high. So we need to bring wages down and we need to bring unemployment up. And that is the goal of the central bank. And the central bank is the, it is the financial institution that is that is uh, dominated by business interests. It is the they are operating on the on the on the on behalf of uh, of big business. I mean that is the bottom line. So that that is regardless of all this other stuff, one hundred percent the reason that we continue to have this inflation 
and it keeps getting worse. And the reason that we uh, that that there uh, well, the reason we continue to have the inflation and, and all this and this labor problem or whatever, if you want to call it a labor problem, it's uh, you could just as easily call it an employer problem. But the reason for this, all of all of this is that labor, they, they want to discipline labor. Labor got a little uppity, tried to flex its muscles and say, hey, no, we want to be treated better. We want we we want more input in our life. We're tired of being ground to a pulp by the clock. And, you know, I want to have a, a, a better life. I want my life to be more than just work. And because labor, because, because labor has done that, the, the entire system is, is trying to discipline them through a variety of mechanisms uh, that they have at their disposal. And so, um, I mean, we've, we've already seen that like when they, they investigated what the, the inflation is, they're like, oh, you know, the, the inflation is like what, 60% higher than it needs to be because of profiteering that we we've seen that, uh, the basically the free money that's been offered by the banks has been rather than being reinvested into uh, into business in order to bring in more employees or bring in, um, <clears throat> you know, to have make sure you have reserve a reserve labor force in order to improve safety conditions, in order to pr- improve working conditions, in order to improve, uh, you know, health care benefits or whatever else. Instead of doing any of that stuff, they've taken all this free money and basically put it into stock options in order to enrich the uh, the C-suite uh, and the, and the, the big investors. And yeah, I, I mean, I, and, and now, so, so for years, that's what, that's what business has done is they've re they've, they've borrowed, so they borrowed at no interest in order to enrich themselves. They've taken free money to enrich themselves and have not done the things that were necessary to improve the working conditions in any way, shape or form or wages. And then with uh, the, you know, the pandemic and everything else sort of sets off, you know, sort of lays bare a lot of these problems. And so labor starts demanding more. And this is the result of that. The result of labor demanding more is we're going to punish you. We're going to punish you. We're going to discipline labor. I don't think there's much correlation there. I think that might be what he said. That might be what the central bank said. But the difference here, what you're talking about is the, the probably the, the Dow 30, the top big humongous companies. You're not talking about so anybody, any company who has, let's say, less than 300 or 400 employees. Yeah, but they they, they don't have any power. I don't, I'm not talking about them. They have no power. I'm talking about the people with power. They don't have they don't have power, but they make up the bulk of the. Doesn't matter. They don't have they power. Make up most businesses. It doesn't matter. They don't have the power. The, They're not the ones who own our politics. They're not the ones who own. Uh, who own the system? But they're the ones that are hiring. That's the one who I'm talking. I, about. I don't care. When these but, companies are looking for people. That's yeah, but that's, that's but that's not that's completely the labor force. That's completely is, irrelevant. Is impacting them. Yeah, I the labor force. Right, is impacting. I, I understand. The other companies that, that you're talking about are going to start layoffs, and and you're right. It's going to hurt the They've employees. They're laying off. You already see it. Yeah. Already started it. That's not going to happen with the mid to small companies. It, that can't it, happen it'll, because they have no choice. It will. It'll. It will trickle down to them. Because of course, I don't uh, believe that'll happen. Well, I mean, okay, so you tell me. You you lay off, you lay off a, a million, um, you know, middle class, you know, um, email jobs, right? Middle class salaried email type jobs. You lay off a million of them from these big companies. How many of those people then decide that they need to bring in a, a local contractor because they're going to remodel their kitchen now they've just been laid off from Microsoft? Or Twitter or Facebook, or they've been laid off by Amazon, you know, as a as a mid tier, you know, manager. They've been laid off by uh, they've been laid off by by Lowe's as a corporate manager. They've been laid they've been laid off by these. Who's going to then take go and and uh, who's going to say, you know what? I really need a massage therapist now. No, that's like the kind of thing you cut out. 
Who's going to say, oh, I need to remodel my kitchen? No, that's the stuff you cut out. You cut out all those. You're correct. So all of those mid-tier jobs that are hiring now, this will, all the layoffs trickle down to them. It's the one way that trickle-down economics works in in that shit goes down. The layoffs won't trickle down to them, but a lot of the layoff people will get those jobs now. There will be a lot of more workforce available for those individuals. See, the small to mid-sized companies aren't – they don't have the luxury to go through layoffs. They won't be a 2024 but their market, so, But their market will shrink. Because there will be fewer customers it, well, available. It, obviously, that depends. That's what I'm it saying. It depends on the industry and if it's a need or a yeah, want. Yeah, if it's a need There's or a want. There's a lot yes, of that's that's what I'm I'm know. talking about wants. I'm I'm saying you know, sure. you'll see a. It's like um, you know, it's like even when the economy is bad, bars still do well. Uh, but the prices in bars have Correct. gone up so high that I'm not sure that they will. Dude, you know, you ain't um, kidding me, man. You know what I mean? Like, let me are, tell you a little story. But liquor, quick, but liquor sales, story. liquor sales won't sales won't won't go down. They'll be fine. I, I went on a date about a, a couple of weeks ago with a with this broad. Went to lunch, what I call a narcos lunch. We had a great time. We went to lunch. We had a couple small plates. We were drinking some wine. Great conversation. That led all the way to like dinner. Ordered a couple more small plates, more drinks. Had a wonderful time. Well, wasn't too extravagant. Small plates. We weren't ordering a flame and yam, but sure. and we just had some drinks. Yeah, top I mean, of my drinks. bill was. Yeah. My bill was two fifty, two hundred and fifty dollars wow. wow. for the two of us. Yeah. I also went out with another night for uh, a group of us, maybe four of us, and again having drinks, couple tapas plates. Again, same thing, small plates, appetizers, maybe two or three of them. Sure. I was drinking drafts. You know, we did a couple shots for someone's birthday, and that was it. Seven hundred dollar bill. It's insane. It's insane. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I have not seen anything like it. I, I mean, and then to go to the liquor store and buy beer isn't much cheaper. No, it's not these days. No, I mean, you know, it's a, a, so, a six packs, twelve bucks, thirteen bucks. You know, I mean, it's unreal. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yep, yep, yep. It's uh, it's insane. All right. Anyway, crazy. sorry. So look here. I I promise this. I'm actually going to get into like uh, two minutes. But uh, th- this is all kind of still the the introduction to the introduction. So I hope it's okay. I hope this is you know uh, going okay. I, like I said, this is where I was a little. No, this is good. I was a little nervous about all this, but I feel like this is a lot of groundwork to cover because it's a uh, talking about time very, is a weird topic to talk about. You know, the very interesting, interesting. I'm very interested. Um, I love the concept. I love the topic of time. Like like I said, this is a very interesting topic, and I I'm very interested in how. How the concept in the in the and back in the days that you're talking about, the uh, individuals started to connect. I need this done at a quicker rate to be to make more money. I need this done quicker. I need this project done quicker. And then if I'm paying now, if we move ahead into the salary and not just the slave labor, but salary right, labor. Right, right. Then it really becomes an essential. Yeah. It's essential. It's like I'm paying you by the hour, so we have to get this done right. this many hours, or I'm I'm no longer profitable. Right. So it really evolves into into being the number one commodity for now, time. For, for the moment, no question. <clears throat> All right. So I want yep. so think so yep. I want you to think about this. So we you know we Adam Smith's you know uh, idea was this idea that like. People are only unwilling to work if you aren't motivating them with higher wages, right? He doesn't believe that labor is necessarily just lazy and that workers are lazy and all that. He's like, if they're lazy, it's not, they're not really lazy. It's that 
they're not being paid enough, so they're not willing to work harder than they know they're, they're not motivated. He, yes. to, to Adam Smith, he's like, people know their value. So they're working to the value that they actually deserve. So, you know, if they, if they believe you're paying them half what they're worth, they're going to work at half speed to at least make it worth their, you know, or just, just fast enough to not get fired or whatever. Okay. So the thing about this is it gets kind of merged with the, uh, what, what is the implicit threat of starvation and death for workers if they don't work at whatever wage, right? Like that's the other part of this is that capitalism requires a surplus population to serve as the kind of metaphorical stick to the carrot of wages, right? Like that's the way you discipline labor is like, we have to have a homeless population to scare the hell out of people because if they don't work, they're afraid they'll be that. So we need that. That is part. Uh, it's built into. It's built into the system. No. You have to have. I don't. I don't agree with that. Well, it's built. Well, it's the same way that the United States redefined um, full employment as five percent unemployment. Like we we decided that five five so, percent of people without a job is full employment because we need to have a surplus population. And I mean, and again, so, big quotes on that. I, I I get what you're saying, but just thinking from my thought point of view i need a job not because i'm necessarily scared of homelessness i need a job because i have needs and wants right i think every human has their needs and wants unless you know you you have an uh i'm not talking about mental issues i'm talking about physical issues but just if you're a normal i know you hate that word if you're an average average person right that's capable sure you're gonna have you need to pay your car insurance. You need to buy a car. I'm not talking about back then. I'm talking about now. Yeah, I understand. Back then, you know, all right, maybe in a simpler time, you still have them, but you got to take care of your family. Uh, you know, there's a lot more favor. So I, I don't necessarily think, I think the homelessness is an unfortunate side effect of the, the because when you have all that amount of people, you know, you're going to have it is. the slice that's. It is That's a f- just not gonna. It is a feature it, of the right? American system, not a bug at this point, um, <clears throat> because like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's a feature, not a bug. It is the, the homelessness is is a feature of of a more modern turn, but a surplus population. Uh, uh, it is important to maintain some percentage of the population that is unemployed, because this because you this can concept, use them the as a threat to the people who are employed when they ask for more wages to say, no, there's five guys outside that want your job. Sure. That's true. In today's world though, it's very interesting because the homelessness isn't necessarily again, scaring anyone because there are a lot of people actually choose it. People choose this. Like if you look at the tent cities, these individuals have their own, environment their own kind of community now yeah. and they're sprouting up everywhere the you, you've had like you know an underground community of homeless people that they get by and, and they figured out a way sure to just live off of the land i think you know most of I them mean? would would mo- the overwhelming majority would rather have security um but do you I, here's my question i mean they'd rather that. not be hassled by the cops they'd not rather not I, I, like I, you know they'd rather not have their have their their um their possessions set on fire by the police, like has been happening in L.A. Do you think? Or, do you think they can get a job? Do you think they're incapable of it, or do you think they choose not? Oh, to? No, no, no. I think that what happens. No, I, no, I, I think that, I think that homelessness uh, went through the roof during uh, during Reagan's deregulation, and I mean when he uh, stripped all the uh, the public services that we used to provide for people at the margins. Uh, when you strip funding for all those things, that that spiked it, and then it's only gotten worse. But I see under... that as being, 
with with mental health, I agree. With I meant you. not just mental right. health, but also the, lots of things. I mean, think about okay, think about how if you were living if you're living really close to the margins. I mean, you are just ends. There's nothing left over. You know, you're you're not doing you're you're everything at the end of the month. Sure, you're just barely getting Been by there. in in the cheapest yep. in the cheapest place you could possibly live. Public housing, you know, and sure, and you got a kid and. You know, your kid gets sick or you get sick, you get sick and you miss work for, for, you have to miss work for a month because you have some debilitating thing. Well, you get fired or you lose your job because, you know, you live in a right to work state so they can fire you for any reason. And, you know, so you lose your job and all of a sudden now you're a month behind on your bills and then you got to go mm-hmm. try and find a job and, and you're, you're still recovering from your illness or your kid's still sick and you're still having to do doctor's appointment. Think of how quickly and how easily that person ends up on the street. When no when question. you stripped away the so when you stripped away the social safety net to help people, you're like, oh well, we're we sorry, we have decided we're only going to let you have welfare for for we're only going to let you have welfare for 16 weeks or for 12 weeks or for for eight weeks, and only if you prove that you're applying to five jobs a week. And you're like, yeah, but I'm in the hospital, like I can't apply to HR, or or yeah, but I'm I'm dealing with this debilitating Ill- illness for my kid or my mother or my father, and how quickly you end up homeless. That happens all the time. And then go back to 2008 when this really spiked, when all these people lost their homes because they got mm-hmm. conned into into sign. I mean, they, like they got tricked. Mm-hmm. Oh no, 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 they got tricked. Mm-hmm. Like, we've seen the. Don't tell me. We've, don't tell me they didn't know exactly what was going. Let me going look on. here, Mike. Don't tell me they didn't. No. Look, someone tells me, hey, look, man, just sign this, man. I'll give you a mortgage. I'll be like, huh, oh, hold everything. I mean, look, if if you don't understand that there's interest only what could happen if this ha- if you don't get that it's not the fault of the individual selling the mortgage well what about when it's the fault what about when the, the internal documents of, uh, of places like wells fargo said they were intentionally targeting people who could not afford them and and they were they were given direct direct uh, instructions to push people into these even when they knew they couldn't afford yeah. them Sure. And now, let, hold on. Uh, now, now, hold on a second. You... Now, hold on. You say this. No, yeah. I want you to say. Okay. You go to the doctor because you got a weird lump on the back of your leg. You don't know what it is. Different, but okay. No, not just listen. If it is, and the doctor says, ahead. and you go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you what to do, because the doctor is an expert. You've gone to the expert yeah. to explain to you something that you don't know what to do, or how to deal uh-huh. with. Sure. So, do you say, <sighs> well? I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm going to trust the doctor. I'm I'm going to see if I can't if I can't, you know, figure out medical school on my own. Cuz that's what it is when you like ha- have you bought a house? I mean, you know what it's like going through the mortgage documents and everything else? It's Oh, I It's insane. I, I, it's daunting. It's I get daunting. It. It's insane. And like we had a lawyer to to go over it with us because Mike, I'm a smart guy. There was so I did not understand I don't understand the language. It's written so that I can't understand it. It's it's intentionally designed to use uh, language in ways that are not clear to any regular person. We had a lawyer so that we knew what we were going through. Now, if I had happened to have a lawyer that was under contract from Wells Fargo, and Wells Fargo was trying to push us into a mortgage we couldn't afford, they knew we couldn't afford because they didn't care. <clears throat> I am going I, to listen I, to the expert that I've gone to talk to. I'm going I to. understand. 
to get a lawyer to, to, to go through a contract like that. But you didn't need a lawyer to understand this is my monthly payment. This is what I make. Sure. Right. Very basic mathematics. Now, you also didn't go out. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. The, the people that bought fight. those. Hold on, hold on, hold, hold on, on, hold on. Because this happened to The ton. people that bought those houses, <laughs> the, the, those mortgages were variable rate mortgages. And people were like, this is what it is, yes. and I can afford it now. And then Correct. the rates changed Correct. on them. Correct. And, they, Correct. and that is a technical Correct. thing that would be very easy not to understand. If you, I mean, you. I get that. And. <clears throat> Totally agree with and, you there. But totally okay, agree look, with you there. We, we can't go into this. We can't go. We got to. We yes, got to yes, go. Yes, yes, yes. I like, get. I get but, okay, another rabbit hole. You do agree that capitalism requires surplus a surplus labor pool, right? You you need of to course. have you need to have the people at the gates that are willing to take the job in order to put pressure on the employee to so they don't agitate too much. You know, they have to be afraid of losing the no, job. You need people at the gates. No, you you need people at the gates so that you can scale and produce more. Well, no, but that's but why need, not to, it's not a scare tactic. No, 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 no. Not, I, no it is a, not, not a scare. I'm not saying. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a as a business you owner, literally, you, just you need, should literally read you need more what people, people like Henry Frick write. But okay, um, like you should read what like I mean, industrialists were writing. Like well, no, this isn't just what it looks like. You should read what like Rockefeller and like Carnegie, Henry Frick, Car- and and Vanderbilt, like what these guys wrote. Like that was they they well, they understood yes, that, this and I'm, wrote about this that like it is really it is really it is really important for them they were like it's important to make sure that there are but this is the time I'm talking about okay so okay. you need to have a surplus you need to have it is the reason that the United States changed the idea of full labor to being five percent unemployment because because under our system five percent of the population without jobs means Everybody that needs it, that everybody, everybody has a job as far as they're concerned. And then you have a 5% labor pool from which to draw, which is, I, which serves as, also, which but, yes, I understand can help people scale up, but is also there to apply soft pressure to currently employed people so that they don't agitate or to not, not so they also, don't, but to try and put pressure so that they won't. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, I again, also I don't, believe that I don't it's, think it's as direct as all that. It's subtle, right? I also do believe that it's it's considered for employment because you do have individuals that are not going to be in the workforce, such as spouses that are stay home parents, and um, yeah, but they're not they're know, not un, like they're not unemployed. Well, they are unemployed. No, they're not calculated as part of unemployment. Unemployment, the, okay. the unemployment rate are people who are actively looking for a job and don't have one. So the unemployment rate is always well below the number of people who are actually trying, who would actually like to get a job because a lot of people, there's drop a lot out. of people that stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's people that, like you say, that just don't, don't want, are not looking for work. The, there's a broader discussion that we should have about the nature of work and, uh, and concepts like, uh, that we accept as normal, like, oh, you have to earn a living as if, being a human being isn't worthy of just um, being alive. You actually have to earn a living, which is, uh, uh, again, doesn't seem like much, but that is a big deal. The fact that we think that, you know, humanity is not sufficient to, to be deserving of, say, the dignity of life. You you must also be productive. No. That is producing all the time. You have to be you have to be a it. productive member of society. Um, you can't just be. And, yeah. and again, like there are there is a way that we could conceive of a society where people. 
people have an impulse to to do things. Mm-hmm. There is a way we can imagine a society where people do the things that they want to do, the things that they feel drawn to, and and we value those things in insofar as they are, you know, in in uh, you know, in a barter system and you can exchange those goods and you know whatever is, you know whatever they're doing. There is a way that you could cre- construct a different kind of economy. But that is not I'm not trying to get into some sort of utopian uh ism here. I'm just I'm just trying to get to the part where I actually talk about clocks, god damn it. Um <laughs> anyway, uh so okay, so look. <laughs> All right. So in the so okay, look, workers could be motivated by time once wages and time become linked in their minds. Additionally, in northern factories with artificial lighting, uh, and in the early stage, we're talking about like you know whale oil, you know, and things like that. But because of artificial lighting in factories, something that works in factories that doesn't work, say, in a cotton field or in a rice, you know, in rice paddies, um, mm. but artificial lighting makes labor um not depend on natural time right so so again the way the clock sort of makes sense in a way it's it's they could administer clock time in a different way in in northern factories planners however maintained the mercantilist view of time because they retained some of the older obligation model uh twisted though it was they viewed the laboring classes as lazy and indolent and because wages were irrelevant, if not just completely antithetical to their system, the clock would have to be adopted as a kind of complementary tool of discipline, something that could work alongside the whip, as opposed to being the motivator, right? It's the only way it works within that structure. So, of course, real world experiences don't line up perfectly with like the theoretical formulas of, you know, Adam Smith or Karl Marx or Hegel or whatever. Uh, and industrial capitalists often harbored great distrust of their workers in North and South alike. And some degree of coercion was deployed to force l- workers to labor. In other words, whether they're relying on actual slaves or wage slaves, the owners of capital harbored uh, a kind of distrust for workers. We can't really understand laborers as a class unless we recognize that, um, unless we recognize the social and cultural formations that grew from processes of change or accommodation over time. So, we have a tendency to only view the kind of victorious outcomes of, of social change uh, as the ones that are worth understanding. But I'd say that's foolish and it's uh, pretty short-sighted. Um, as the historian E.P. Thompson wrote in his really amazing book about the, the um, how the laboring class of uh, how the working class of England came to, into existence and like as a class, it's an amazing book. If you ever feel like reading 900 pages of uh <laughs> of labor history uh, it's 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 pretty impressive uh anyway he, okay. he wrote quote this tends to obscure the agency of working people the degree to which they contributed by conscious efforts to the making of history end quote so for thompson he says by focusing exclusively on the winning ideas and forgetting quote the blind alleys the lost causes and the losers themselves uh end quote we fail to recognize the validity of their own aspirations on their own terms and the validity of their own experiences. So, um, so this is again something to keep in mind. We're not just going to look at the people who won. We're also going to look at people who lost and and what they were fighting for, even though they lost, because that tells us something about how they viewed the world in which they lived. Okay, that's the point. So, because time wage negotiations in the North brought a kind of watch owning, clock listening working class into uh, the kind of ideological folds of industrial capitalism and the logic of that system. Um, and it did it by teaching the language uh, and the worth of clock time, right? So people had to learn this, that they, like to think about time as money, the value of clock time. 
This promoted the kind of individualistic liberal democracy of our early burgeoning nation in the 19th century. In the South, however, a slave's time belonged to the master. There could be no negotiation over the value of time or the worth of time. Southern planners wanted capitalism without democracy. They believed that watch and clock owning slaves could easily become time negotiating workers. And so they sought to impose clock time as a matter of obedience, but stripped of any of the negotiations over time that come with it, right? Planters wanted to impose the kind of factory-like clock-punching time discipline, but they had to do it within the confines of this system that was dependent on seasonal patterns and like, you know, the what's called the diur- diurnal pattern, that is the, the sun-up, sun-down pattern of every day. In other words, they wanted clock punchers in a system that had no clocks to punch. Um, and if this isn't clear so far, the reason this was so important was that the clock bestowed power on the people who knew how to use them sort of like language, right? Like, or literacy. Like if you know how to use literacy, it's a very powerful weapon for imperialism, right? So like every other property class, planters coveted profit and they coveted social control of labor. And so any additional tools of power that would help them control labor and improve profit, were going to be welcome. They just had to figure out how to use it. So the key thing to consider uh, here is that because of the reliance on agriculture and slavery, it's been easy for people to dismiss the antebellum South as a kind of relic of a bygone era. I think this is a kind of the stereotype most people have of the pre-Civil War South in particular. Even today, a lot of this sticks around, that the South was stuck in a kind of pre-modern mode of thinking and pre-modern behavior, unlike the progressive, rapidly modernizing North. But if we look at the question of time, we can see how Southern planters were modernizing, that they were somewhat unique among agricultural societies and that they were internalizing the clock discipline and trying to apply the same to their plantation system, just doing it in a different way that's maybe a little harder to recognize than the the traditional way of northern factories. Excuse me. Scholars are kind of near universal in the belief that um, the modern compulsion to obey time was set in motion by the availability of mechanical timepieces. So uh, keep in mind, we're talking about a whole new way of thinking that changes because of the shift from pristine solar time to an increasingly kind of measurable, fragmented mechanical time. Fragmented, meaning, you know, divided by the minute, by the second, by the hour, whatever. Again, because labor in the South was largely dependent on natural solar time, it seems kind of hard to imagine that modern clock-dependent personalities would develop there, but this kind of ignores the the... Uh, how many clocks and watches existed in the South, right? Like, you know, people became clock dependent and we can tell because of how many clocks there were and how many watches there were. And it kind of ignores the conflicts between like task oriented labor and the, and time disciplined labor that emerged there. Right. So again, agricultural labor tends to be more task oriented than time oriented. Right. We can see that um, day laborers and things are not uncommon to us. Okay. Hey, Unbalanced listeners, Uh, it's Brian here. Listen, I'm going to end this first part here as a kind of long introduction. I left a lot of our digression and discussion uh, intact. A lot of times I would just pull that out uh, to keep the story in line. But in this case, I thought it was all pretty interesting. So I left it in. Uh, Part two will be kind of the the actual story, that uh, beginning of the real story that we're telling here. So stay tuned for that. That should be up and running very soon. In the meantime, enjoy this very extended uh, introduction and discussion, and thanks for listening. 